Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Well, good good morning, I guess it will be. Um, I just want to say, my name is Shane Renewsom, and uh, I want to thank you for the opportunity to, to preach here. Thank Rick and um, for inviting me to do that. I want to let you know that uh, we at City Church uh, regularly pray for you at, at Gospel Community. We pray for your well-being and your growth, and um, so we're, we're glad. I'm glad to be here with you this morning. Um, when Rick uh, asked me to, to preach, I asked him what he, what he wanted me to preach on, and I, I told, uh, he told me that he wanted to preach on something that comes out of my story over the last uh, recent years. And so with that, I, I've come to uh, Revelation chapter 5, um, verse 1, I think in the email that went out, it said 1 through 11. I'm going to actually read 1 through 14, if that's okay. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are of the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people from people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the, live, and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, uh, this, this day. We thank you for the rain that's come and for uh, the sun that's out um, and for the smoke that's cleared. Lord, we pray for uh, just... Uh, um, that we would be reminded in this that you, uh, your mercies are new every, more, every morning, that you are with us, you're for us, that you love this world. And so with that, we also pray for just Oregon and Washington and California that the wildfires would, would, um, would end and we could, um, that the devastation would, would stop. Again, this, we pray that you would bless this word to our hearing, the preached word to our our, our well-being, um, and all for the glory of your name. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 
Well, as I, as I think about um, uh, this passage and, and how it relates to my story, I think about a, a different story, actually not my story. It's a story of the, uh, the Eagle Creek fire, I believe now, my, my, uh, if I'm going by memory. Um, that happened in 2017, about the same time of the year, um, in, up in the uh, Columbia River Gorge. It was started by a 15-year-old boy who um, was with his friends and threw a firecracker off of a cliff down into a canyon uh, that sparked a fire that burned 50,000 acres. Devastating kind of moment. And I think about what it would be like for that 15-year-old boy to now, who's now 18, to perhaps go back to that spot, whether it's physically or, or mentally, and, and stand there at, the, at that point, at, at really the center point of uh, 50,000 acres of devastation, of suffering and brokenness as far as the eye can see and beyond really his ability to comprehend. I, I wonder what it maybe felt like as that firecracker left his hand and sparked whatever it sparked and whatever he became aware of, I wonder what it was like for him to feel that moment where he wished he could get that decision back. Where he could undo the milliseconds that went into tossing a firecracker into the void. I wonder what it's like for him to think about um, what his fateful decision has caused. And I think, I think that standing at that spot, he must wonder if there's really anything that can reach that spot and heal it, to restore it, to take the brokenness of it, the sorrow of it, the grief, the shame, the embarrassment, the guilt of it away. The book of Revelation is written to a people who are suffering persecution. It's a book that's written into sorrow and it's written into sorrow with the promise that there is blessing to those who would read it. Um, and I think that's fascinating because it's one of the, maybe the books that we struggle with the most to, to uh, understand what it's, what it's about, even in this passage where there's so much rich theological imagery and, and um, uh, contour, uh, there's a lot that we, we wrestle with to understand. But that's the point. That's what it's given to us to invite us to do is in the moment of our suffering, in the moment of our sorrow, in the moment of our fear and confusion. John was, was exiled because he had been preaching the gospel. The church was being persecuted. And this is what God decided to give us to speak into that moment. And I think it's given to us to help us see a little bit of what's behind it all what's at the center of it all. Maybe you have that feeling in your own life, some of your own stories where you think about the center of it all and you think about being in, at the center of it all and all you can look out on is the, the possibility of grief and shame and devastation, sorrow of a moment or maybe many moments, maybe not your own moments, maybe somebody else's moments that you wish you could get back and undo. 
I think about this passage in the context of COVID and our, our just seems like our human desire to have some sort of explanation for what's going on. And so we have conspiracy theories. And Revelation is given to help us see what's behind it all, what's at the center of it all. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the passage and we're going to ask that question. What's at the center of it all? The, uh, chapter four was, was about the throne room of God. We've, John was ushered up out of the seven letters into this vision of, of God's throne room. And as, as, as the story or the picture is given of God on his throne, we're moving uh, into these concentric circles, into the very center of God's throne. And, and that's where we find our passage today. And, and so we're asking, what is at the center, not of it all, but ultimately, Ultimately, what's at the center of God's throne? What, what sits there in, in the very heart of God, in the very, um, uh, the very center of his being? And that's this vision. And so the first thing we see at the center of it all is a question. And the question is offered up in the context of the scroll. The scroll is held in the strong arm of God, his right hand, and it's, we're told it's written on the front and the back. It's in the form of a... Commentators talk a lot about what's in the scroll. The, the basic understanding of the scroll is everything else in Revelation hangs on this question. If we're going to get to Revelation 21, where it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with mankind. Behold, I am making all things new. Behold, the wedding supper of the Lamb has come. It hangs on this question. Who can open the scroll? Our deepest longings, we might say, our deepest desires for healings, we might say. We might say the very promises of God, our hope, uh, our hope and our dreams, hangs on this question. It's the story of God's kingdom, it's the story of us, it's the story of the world. It includes his, the, the, the past, the present, and the future, it includes the story of Jesus, but it also includes your story, my story, your life, all of it, the beginning, the middle, the end. We're told that the scroll, as the question is asked, who is worthy to open, that it's sealed sevenfold. It's, it's strongly sealed, right? And so we see at the center of it all is this question, who can open it? Who can look into it? And the question is posed, who is worthy? It's the question of endings, it's a question of hope. Who is worthy, who hasn't failed, who can deliver and help? Who can make sense of all this? Who can put an end to all the injustice and sorrow and grief in the world? Who can fix what is broken? Who can right the wrongs? Who can undo all these mistakes, mine? yours, others, who can free the innocent and who can take away my shame, who can break the chains and reveal what is hidden, who ultimately can redeem. And so at the center of it all is this question and at the center of it all with this question is a search. And we're told that um, with the question of who is worthy to open the seals, a search is, is um, is put on, and it's expansive. John sees that no one in heaven can. In this, in this throne room, none of the 24 elders, none of the four living creatures, no, none of the angels, 
So the search extends to earth and no one on earth or under the earth can look into the scroll, much less open it. It's as if God summons his fastest horses with his sturdiest riders and they're sent to find one who, which one is worthy. And the answer is no one. Not Adam, not Enoch, not Noah or Abraham or David or Solomon, not the prophets, not Mary, not Gandhi or Mother Teresa, not Trump or Biden or some newly constructed Supreme Court. Not you, not me. And if we miss this, we, um, we, we miss the heart of what's going on here. We miss that the destiny of the church hangs on this question, the destiny of our lives and the destiny of, of that question at the center of it all, at the center of all of our brokenness, my brokenness, what the answer is. And so at the center of it all is a, is a search. It's a question, a search. And then we see at the center of it all is weeping. And I think about this, and I don't know what to do with it, to be honest, because John has been ushered up into the very, uh, the very, the very picture of where God sits enthroned. And when he hears the answer to this question that no one has found that is worthy, He's 60 years into his journey as a follower of Jesus and we're told that he weeps. The original language is that he weeps and he weeps and he weeps. If God is really God, then why doesn't he do something? Have you ever asked that question? That's what hangs in John's weeping. Why did I have to lose this or suffer this? John weeps and he feels the weight of the moment of the question and the answer that no one was found who was worthy. Who has the right to open God's plan for a broken world? Who, who and what will enter into the center of it all in terms of my grief, my shame? He weeps and he weeps loudly. He reaps from his gut. He weeps the kind of tears that feel like they come from somewhere else. And, and I think that if you've suffered, you've lived in the unknown, you've had real failure, real loss, you feel a bit of why John weeps. We have to wrestle with weeping in heaven. That's obviously not the end of the search for what is at the center of it all, but I think it's very important for us to allow that to be, to, to sit with John weeping in heaven. We read ahead and we know what's coming if you're familiar with the story, and oftentimes we as Christians, we wanna to jump to the end too quickly and we don't know what to do with the stories and the songs of lament and sorrow and grief. And the invitation is here for us that if we want to see what's at the center of it all, we have to peer into what brings John such grief, weeping, sorrow. 
to answer the question to grief, we have to, or to feel the weight of the question, or the answer to our grief, we have to feel the weight of the question. Our understanding of the good news rises and falls. It's, it's directly proportionate to our understanding of why John weeps. And, and I, let me go ahead and say this. It also rises and falls with your ability to, to acknowledge your own sorrow, your own hurts, your own wounds, your own sin. And so at the center of it all is John weeping. And then at the center of it all is a, a response to his weeping. At the center of it all is the good news and it's the good news of a king. He's told to weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe, behold, look. It's the most used word in the book of Revelation. The Revelation is this interesting book and it's supposed to be seen I believe it's supposed to be taken in like a great piece of art. Um, we tend to wanna, we wanna treat it like a computer code rather than like a masterwork of, of art. We're supposed to see it and feel it. The whole look, and he's told to look and he's told that there's, there's a hero, a conqueror, a rescuer, the line of the tribe of Judah. This comes from the promise of Genesis 49. It is the promise of, of the one from the line of Abram that would finally undo what's at the center of really the story, right? The, the fall of Adam, our first parents, Adam and Eve, and their fateful decision that they wish they could have gotten back. And we're told to look. The hero is standing right there. Weep no more. This is the stuff of legends and childhood dreams. This is, um, this is the very heart of the promise that John had hoped in. And so we look and we see at the center of it all is the promise of a hero king. The whole story of the Bible is kind of coming together and coalescing in this this, uh, this call, this beckon to behold, to look and see. And so when, when we, we're set up for this and when I hear um, weep no more, behold the line of the tribe of Judah, I think of a king in all his array and maybe on his war horse and maybe followed by a parade of, of, of uh, celebrating warriors and, and, um, and people just um, at a party. And yet when, when John turns to look at this great hero king, what he looks and sees is, we're told, is a, a lamb. And the text is literally reads right in the middle of the throne of God. It's like God's sitting there and you look and you're looking at God's throne and in the middle of that is this lamb. And it's not just a lamb, it's the, the, the word is a diminutive word, it's a little lamb. It's the, uh, Revelation is the only place in the New Testament where this word is used. And we're told that the lamb is standing as if slain and the word there is slaughtered. Killed, offered up 
put down. And it's a troubling image to think about a little lamb <laughs> and its slaughter. And we're to be troubled by it. To think about our hero king, our conquering savior, and to see him um, in this kind of, I, I use this word and I, I know it probably makes some people uncomfortable, but I think this is at the heart of, of what it means for Jesus to go to the cross, that there's something pathetic about it. He's shamed and embarrassed in front of all. We're told that the cross, anyone hung on a cross is, is, is cursed, it's shameful. And this imagery is, is to pull us into the emotive realization that the hero king is the um, cursed lamb. And what I, I think is important about this, I believe, is when we ask the question, what is at the center of it all? We have to see that at the center of it all is, is our suffering is our sorrow. That the lamb that is slain is, is the slain lamb because of those fateful decisions, because of those moments that ripple out into devastating effects around the world. Sometimes it's just um, in our, our own households or in, um, in our, our business, our relationships, our friendships, uh, but sometimes it's devastating. And what we see at the center of it all is, is that our suffering is held forth in this lamb. And we see that at the center of it all is God's heart for our suffering. One of the things that I know about suffering is that it begs for connection. It begs for those who understand, for those who don't abandon. Like I wonder about the 18 year old as he stands back at that spot where, he, where this 50,000 acre fire um, has, has rippled out from his fateful decision and I wonder how alone he feels. I think I, I think I know, a little bit of it anyway. Deep suffering begs for those who understand and who will not abandon us in our grief and our sorrow, and at the center of it all is a picture of God who will not abandon you in your suffering. His heart is for you. When, when John says over in John chapter three that God loved the world, that he gave his only son, what he's saying is that his heart is for you in your suffering, in your sorrow, in your grief. God holds this at the very center of his throne in the very person of his lamb that was slain, that was slaughtered, that suffered. One of my favorite books is a, a book by a man named Nicholas Waltersdorf, theologian who, this is not a theological work, it's called A Lament for a Son, he lost his son when his son was, I think, 25 years old, and this is just him pouring out his grief. And here's what he says about God in his grief. God is not only the God of the sufferers, but the God who suffers. The pain and fallenness of humanity have entered into his heart. Then he goes on to say, through the prism of my tears, I have seen a suffering God. 
One of my favorite artists is Patty Griffin. She says it like this. She says, nothing is louder to God's ears than a poor man's sorrow. King David himself, actually, I don't know that he wrote this psalm. I didn't look up the title. But Psalm 56 says it this way. You have kept count of my tossings. You have counted the number of times I have rolled over in bed in my grief and in my nightmares and in my fears. God, you have kept count of them and put my tears in your bottle. You've held my tears in a bottle. Are they not in your book? At the center of it all is a God who holds vigil for your griefs, for our griefs, for our sorrows. I think it's essential for us to understand this if we're going to understand the great celebration that comes next. One of my, uh, going back to one of my, another one of my favorite authors, a guy named Frederick Bigner wrote a book about the gospel and he titles it the gospel as, telling the truth, the gospel as tragedy, comedy, and fairy tale. And, and his point is, if you want me to just sum it up for you, is you can't get to the, the, the comedy of the gospel, the joy and laughter and the fairy tale of the gospel until you understand the tragedy of the gospel. And right here at the center of God's throne room is, is a, a picture of him holding vigil for your grief, your sorrow. And because of that, at the center of it all, we find hope. We find not only is the lamb slain, slaughtered, but he's standing. It's an interesting image. It's a hard thing to hold together, this slaughtered lamb that's standing. But the picture is of the resurrected, um, suffered, slaughtered lamb. At the center of it all is um, all of the world's salvation and hope. The church is able to overcome because this one has conquered. He has entered into the depths of suffering and death and is coming out of it and he's standing. But what we see in that is even in the midst of that, um, and I believe in all eternity, what we're seeing here is that Jesus bears the marks of our grief so that we might then celebrate all the more that we are resurrected with him. Jesus has conquered, and therefore we conquer. Our hope, our tears are dried up. Revelation 21 unfolds, and we can say that there will be no more weeping, no more tears, no more sorrow because of this, the slaughtered standing lamb. And I think this is the only image that can go to that spot with that young man. It's the only image that can go to that spot with me. It's the only thing that could dry the tears of John as he wept at the question. And that is, at the center of all is a lamb who bears our griefs, our sorrows, our sin, our shame, our guilt, and has been resurrected is standing and he's standing there for you, for me. Your hope is not in how well you navigate 
all that's, that's going on here. Your hope is that he has conquered. And that therefore leads you into how you live your life here and deal with your sorrow here. So, at the end of it all is this hero king, this man, this human, who is our hero. And it's here that the worship then explodes and goes viral. See, the only way to worship in the midst of your sorrow is to behold the line of the tribe of Judah who's a lamb that was slaughtered and resurrected for you. And at that point, joy floods in, in the midst of it, in that space, at the heart, at the center of your grief and shame and sorrow, comes joy. Profound joy, a new song. I was driving by on my way back from Eastern Oregon just yesterday through the Columbia River Gorge and there are scars from that fateful decision. But there's also new life and beauty. Um, there's healing and there's scars. And I think ultimately in, in this life um, as Christians, we can be tempted to try to live, in, in Beekner's words, we can try to live in the comedy and when we live in the comedy, we don't really get to the true depth of joy it's in the comedy and tragedy that the fairy tale takes on life and meaning and hope and promise. So at, at the center of it all is, is our hope and our hope is in the, the resurrected slaughtered lamb. It's there that we find true joy and it's the only thing that could go to the center of our suffering and sorrow with us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your grace and your mercy. Um, Lord, I, th I, I thank you that the very, the very things that I want to sort of hide away from you because they're too heavy, uh, you have said you, you hold them, you care about them, and you redeem them. But I pray that we would believe this. We would believe that you know our griefs and our sorrows, and you are faithfully committed to healing them in your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.